Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Holden McNeely. Hi, it's me, your fanboy, slave, gross man. Um, I I lost a lot of brain cells from latex rubber fumes, and also my uh, leather diaper is chafing immensely. Um, all of my family has left me because I've been following you on the road for the past forty years, and I wouldn't have it any other way. I love you. Please shoot fake jism at me some more. I love getting blasted by gallon after gallon of full bodily fluids uh, yeah wizard jake young and welcome <laughs> it's time it's time for guar uh this is such a fun one to research it is such a not as scary as i thought it would be uh, i was ready for some jake, real spook em ups yeah jake really wasn't fully aware of what the guar is so jake can you give us your journey of discovering Guar this week. One of the things that I feel like really defines Guar's entire trajectory is this level of infamy. Like everybody has heard of Guar, whether it was uh, the fact that they were Beavis and Butthead's favorite band, uh, you know, canonically in the show and canonically in the video games. If you like all those Beavis and Butthead, like Nintendo, Super Nintendo, Sega Genesis games, the goal is to get to a Guar show and there's like an, a pixel odorous erungus like dancing for you if you ever reach the end. The fact that they would show up on Jerry Springer, the fact that they would show up on uh, even like weird stuff like there's an episode of Codename Kids Next Door that has child friendly versions <laughs> Of Gorgor on it. And, you know, you would hear all of these stories like, oh, like uh, my brother went to a Gore show and like he shot like just fucking blood everywhere and they beheaded uh, President uh, Obama. And you'd be like, what? No, they didn't. Like, that's not. No, you can't get away with that. And like, so everybody has at least heard of Guar. Guar is like a touchstone cultural reference within the world of metal and like horrorcore and all the, these things, but like actually engaging with the music. I don't think I listened to a single Guar song the whole way through. Also Empire Records, there's a whole scene where that involves Guar getting uh, one of our, one of the characters getting high in, in a hallucination, getting fed to the world maggot. And like, the actual lore, the actual origin story, the actual 
weirdly like prescient and uh, just 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 cultural niche that they've inhabited. Uh, they're at the end of the day, they're a comedy band. It is satire. It is uh, over the top farce where they have just taken what during the satanic panic, a bunch of like uh, conservative moms thought that Dungeons and Dragons and metal music was and just decided to embody it fully to the height of the of a parent's worst imagination. And it's like without that, I don't even know what they would be. It's such a crazy thing. I'm sorry. Thank you for letting me uh, blather and slather all over this microphone. Yeah, for me, I think the first time I personally was aware of Guar was Empire Records, I would say. Uh, and then in college later hearing like, you know, God, this show is so cool. You got to go. You just get completely hosed with fake blood <laughs> no matter where you stand in the <laughs> venue. And, uh, you know, I think back in the day, it's. It's kind of funny, like, we've covered stuff in the past, like Dungeons and Dragons, where this weird satanic panic formed around it. And it was like, and then looking back, you're like, dude, come on, this is just, it's a nerdy game. Mm -hmm. Guar was, like, actively trying to create the satanic panic <laughs> around it, you know, and embraced that. And really, though, at the end of the day, deep down, it's the same thing. It's just a bunch of nerds who are incredibly inspired by sci-fi and comic books and professional wrestling and all these just all these different like counterculture things. Their list of influences and like art <laughs> forms that they were inspired by and actively and D &D, participated. by the way, yeah. and Dungeons and Dragons. Is so completely like a, a perfect slice of like late 80s, early 90s nerd shit yes. that ironically yes. enough, the Really, the only thing missing from their uh, inspirational equation is metal. <laughs> like actual heavy metal music is like not even remotely anything that like they were inspired by. Eventually, you know, the members have grown and shrank and shifted and changed over the years. Um, and the current lineup does not have any of the original members. But like the core through line of Guar is just raw abrasive spectacle um, with just this incredibly Gen X comedy bend to it. I watched the epic uh, hour-long music video, uh, Phallus in Wonderland, that earned them a Grammy nomination. And um, the amount of dead baby and crack jokes that I just, they love crack. Crack is the funniest thing to these guys. <laughs> uh, just everything well, I mean, about it. It was the height of the crack epidemic. I know. You know what I mean? I, it, it's all, it, it was all going down in the 90s. And, this, you know, the Beavis and Butthead tie-in really makes Guar like one of the biggest mishmashes of just of of what you were saying of 90s culture of that time and uh it's all just thrown in the pot but then the other aspect of it is it's incredible uh the incredibly diy aspect of mm -hmm. what this is and the i mean and it'll be kind of hilarious the the focal point of of them standing by their laurels when we get there and why mm -hmm. they never went like fully mainstream and i do think it's a regret that members have yeah, uh, for sure. With, that, we'll there's definitely a that. very specific turning point where it's like, no, we're not going to back down. We're going to say the worst things into a microphone we possibly can for the sake of artistic expression. I th and so it, that yeah. is really it though. Like, uh, you know, this is a band that gained their reputation for their live shows simply because it was the only way for them to earn a living. It's a massive artist collective that, you know, everybody gets a split of. 
And um, the album sales never really like busted up the charts. So, you know, these are guys now in their 50s and 60s that have like lived harder lives than anybody could possibly imagine. And they've left scars and they've left bodies in their wake. And all of this, you wouldn't think so because everybody's heard of Guar. But no, but the actual people that pay to see Guar is an elite brotherhood. So, again, it's infamy versus the actual, like, cushiness of fame that Guar kind of uh, represents this disconnect from, where everybody's heard of Guar, but Guar is still working their ass off to this day. Yeah. I, stop me if you've heard this one before, but like this really does remind me a lot of of what I was doing with Murder Fist back in the day. It's, it's like one to one. It's uh, like kind of insane. Not one to one. They went way harder than what we did. Like we prided ourselves on how messy our stage show was and it doesn't hold a fucking candle to what Guar does any given night of the week uh, with, with their stage show and everything. And even way back when they first started, the amount of handmade props handmade like effects mm -hmm. pumps and stuff <laughs> like you know the whole cuttlefish i mean come on we got to mention the cuttlefish penis for odorous orungus the costumes are just so insane and elaborate and crazy because we were theater kids these are mostly art students mm -hmm. who are finding a way to combine essentially like the crazy alt music punk scene they were trying to throw out there with the wild spectacle you know and all in richmond virginia which is a, a place where uh, you know, it seems that if you go to Richmond, you'd be like, oh, yeah, it makes sense. Guar came from here. Uh, you know, it's kind of a not not a you know, it's Richmond, Virginia. Well, I don't know. It's um one of the many resources we looked at while doing this episode was a, a TEDx talk given by uh, Mike Bishop, who is the current lead singer, Blothar and former uh, bassist and originator of the uh, Beefcake, the Mighty character. And uh, he was he's an actual academic. He studies like music theory and culture and uh, kind of the racial lines and cultural lines that lead to modern music. And he basically lays it all out that like Richmond, Virginia is an exact den of American horrors where like slavery, the Confederacy, urban blight and like white flight all come together and created this like war zone that was the only place a band like Guar could emerge from. Like, they are not, they did not invent the muck. They emerged from the muck, so to speak. Yes. And, and, and that's definitely so embedded there. All of their, they're even, and, and kind of, they laid enough roots too, where they never really got out of Richmond, mm -hmm. you know, and now embrace that community that uh, sort of created this like horror show. But also, you know, this band, yeah, just obviously uh, reminds me of Murder Fist though too, in the way that it's kind of untenable to have <laughs> like 14 members of a, of a act mm -hmm. and uh, find a way to put, you know, food on, in the mouths of all of them, mm -hmm. you know, and crack that code. And I think for them, especially because they stuck to their laurels so much, didn't go fully mainstream ever. 
therefore didn't get to the point of like ghost Mm -hmm. you know i think they paved the way for all bands like ghost i don't know if ghost exists without what guar was was nailing down i did a little bit of dig i you know i'm not a musical historian i've never been like a guy that like loves the history of rock or anything but i did a little bit of digging and like you know now there's bands like necro goblin and lordy and even bands like slipknot where like the the mask, the costume, the stage lore all kind of like builds on each other and creates these larger in life characters and adds this layer of grotesqueness that like, co- you know, amplifies the heaviness of the music. But at the time, it really was an unprecedented thing for like this uh, level of theatrics to be entering into the punk hardcore metal kind of clubs that they were entering into. They were putting on a show in an era where like you kind of had to prove how little you gave a fuck and Gwar, weirdly enough, turned how little they gave a fuck into a show, which is like a very weird thing. I mean, and I love that too. And that's very 90s too. Just as much as we were screaming, Primus sucks <laughs> all together to show our love for the band Primus, they were doing that other thing where they're like, fuck you, we hate you, audience. You're all idiots. I mean, it's something I adopted in my stuff on Roundtable even. Like I would just get, get, have so much uh, fun and, and, and screaming at the audience yelling at people to stop listening to our podcast and you know what i mean it's it's edgar was so on the forefront of that and that all that stuff is fun much less the part where like their whole process is they literally write an entire conceptual stage show and have a plot line for their entire album and then they go take that and it's like a continuation from the previous storyline which is very D and all this kind of stuff, these reoccurring characters that they bring in. And it's this whole like rock opera too, at the same time is incredibly impressive to me. Uh, and, and yeah, but even though it's all dumb as fuck and just absurd, and but there's just grotesque, there's like this extra angle where like it's, it turns into a, I, I don't know how to describe this, like almost a mixture of like daily show meets captain planet, just like paper thin political commentary yes. where like, yes, it's just yes. like, I'm going to be, had Britney Spears because fuck that shit like it's not like <laughs> the deepest uh, commentary I've ever heard but they definitely no, but they write a script yeah, yeah. and they like fully plan out like like they, they really pride themselves in creating an album that fully tells the story that they then intend to go out into the world and tell mm. to their audience and that respect for the audience is amazing because you know they could probably get away with just pulling the same tricks over and over again with the same props and the same costumes. It's interesting. There's like riffs. There's like individual riffs in a Guar show. There yeah. is the uh, Sexecutioner segment where they like bring up either like a representative of a moral or political uh, movement that they wanted destroy and they like rip the tits off a nun all of this by the way very comical very like over the top grotesque like clearly rubber latex it's not like they're trying to trick people into thinking any of this is real or like celebrities there's the uh the world maggot or the meat grinder where like uh people from the audience and vips get dragged on stage and fed into some unholy machine with blood spraying <laughs> there's uh the wrestling bits where uh someone like uh techno mechanicus techno mechanica hunter jackson's character does his little villain turn and like has a big brawl with everybody on stage and they adapt those 
like for each tour, but like they're definitely, they rhyme with each other. There is a rhythm to it. It almost feels like if you are a longtime fan of Guar, going to one of their shows is almost like the Rocky Horror Picture Show where yes. you know the parts you're supposed to participate in. And there's like a secret handshake language that happens as you get into the rhythm of their shows. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's so cool. I, I love it. I, I love this band. It's such a great story. And also, honestly, you know, if this episode doesn't do it, Justice, look no further than the incredible Guar documentary that came out on Shudder. I think we rented it on Amazon Prime. Um, Mm -hmm. It is phenomenal. It's way better than it ever needed to be. It it covers their entire expansive history. And, you know, I think the real secret of it all at the end of the day you know, is that this? there's a lot of heart in this band and there's a lot of love in this band. And you get that in the documentary and it's incredibly touching. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, baby fuck, baby fuck. Hold uh, <laughs> it, no spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's get into it. Guar is a heavy metal band that originally were part of an elite fighting force called the Scum Dogs of the Universe, originally servants of a supreme being known as the Master. They were all such intergalactic fuck-ups that they were banned to Earth where they had sex with apes to create the human race and eventually form a rock and heavy metal band. Also, they're an artist collective known as Slave Pit Inc. Yada, yada, yada formed a new heavy metal act <laughs> out of Richmond, Virginia in 1984. Yada, yada, yada something about went on to release 15 studio albums yada, yada, yada. And now even though there are no longer any founding members in the band, they still perform regularly and continue the Guar legacy. How did that happen? How is it so? Well, let's get into it right Right now, starting with, I have I, I first on my list. I have we're not we. By the way, there are so many members, and so many members come in and go out, and the nitty gritty of that is very well covered in the documentary. I don't think I'm going to be specifically being like, and then <laughs> this version of yeah. the big guy with the spikes on. Now, him. the difference between Flatus three and Flatus seven is uh, <laughs> subtle, but you can notice several differences in the way they pitch correct on the G chords. Like, I, no, we're not doing that, but. The name that we really should mention up top, at least one of them, is Dave Brocky, mm-hmm. the original frontman for the group until his untimely death in 2014. Brocky said, My understanding of punk rock started in like 1976. I was watching TV with my mom. We were watching The Tomorrow Show with Tom Snyder, and there was a report on the Sex Pistols, and my mom was like, Oh my God, that's horrible. I was sitting there going, Yeah, mom, that's horrible. <laughs> but I was thinking, Oh my God, that looks like so much fun. Dave Brocky grew up in Fairfax, Virginia, and was regularly going to Washington, D.C. in the early 80s as a first-generation hardcore punk at the height of the D.C. punk scene. He did this because his brother, at the ripe age of 16, ended up getting an apartment in D.C., which I, I think that's like you my could do firmest that indication of... You could do that at yeah, the time. Yeah, you could do that at the time. And also, my, fir- my, my firmest indication of like what his childhood was... Kind of, I'm, I'm guessing latchkey kid. It seems like they, they have a lot of freedom early early on and not a lot of money just because he's uh, the almost the quintessential Gen Xer uh, with the most uh, anti authority sense of humor I've ever witnessed in a living human being doesn't mean he definitely was a latchkey kid you know so he's 13 years old and he is attending these punk shows in Washington DC and though this is a huge inspiration for him, we're talking, you know, Black Flag, we're talking Fugazi, these types of groups uh, that were coming out of that area. 
He also felt the scene was oppressive in its ideologies, as everyone was doing the whole straight edge thing in Washington, D.C. And there were a lot of standards and like weird kind of unspoken rules to that hardcore scene. Oh, absolutely. Where you didn't get fucked up. You you didn't party. You like, this was like serious, man. This was like serious art, you know? And it also didn't help that the progenitors of the scene seemed to hate Brocky's guts. He seemed <laughs> to be that like annoying kid that was coming around. And, you know, from everything I have heard, read about Dave Brocky is that He's like the kind of guy, and I'm sure he was even way more obnoxiously so at 13, the kind of kid that's the center of attention when he walks mm-hmm. in the room. He He's magnetizing, but also, I bet, especially at a young age, annoying, too, probably, especially to a bunch of like self-serious, hardcore punks <laughs> in Washington, D.C. in the 80s, you know? Brocky said, it really made me work hard to find my own way of expressing what was going on inside of me. Having these having these groups like literally like they would fuck with him like when slam dancing became a thing in the scene like they would like fuck with him using that mm-hmm. he, he he talks about like a lifelong resentment towards those guys that those guys were never really nice to him it really definitely put a thorn in his ass mm-hmm. to go fi- what's so funny too is he's not even rebelling against like mainstream American no. music he's rebelling against the hardcore <laughs> punk scene in DC he's rebelling against the rebellion so he forms his first band in the ninth grade at 14 it's called nuclear dog shit he said Amazing. he was in quote he said he was in quote a bunch of loser bands uh, in quote before he found his first successful outlet including a piano and fiddle outfit called yams on wheels and quote i was in the flashbacks my first year in college it sucked one set was all hardcore which i had written and the other set was police covers the other two guys <laughs> insisted on playing I was living in Farmville, going to Longwood College. I was so freaked out when I got out of high school. I went to the first college I applied to. I didn't even give it a thought. In Farmville, the only thing to do on the weekend was drive down to Richmond. It was the closest thing to culture within 100 miles. Wow, VCU. Lots of chicks there. Lots of punk rockers. There were none in Farmville. And at 18, he moves fully to Richmond, Virginia to attend VCU, which is short for Virginia Commonwealth University. And he ends up living in a deserted milk bottling plant called Richmond Dairy. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. By this time, Brocky was a member of the band Death Piggy, I believe, which was actually a bit of a local phenomenon. Uh, It was kind of this... Very irreverent take on hardcore punk, very fast, very heavy, very silly lyrically and subject matter wise. Uh, listening to a couple of Death Piggy songs, it turns out uh, his lifelong obsession with uh, phallic deli meats definitely started there. A lot of salami references. If you listen to the Guar song Solemizer, that is uh, it just it just I was like, oh, wow, looks like he really liked salami songs that early in his career. Good for him. <laughs> 
but he was kind of a big deal. He, he, you know, in the hardcore scene, he was like the annoying little kid, but here he was larger than life. I know having lived in DC that like Richmond for a lot, especially culturally kind of lives in the shadow of DC that like DC is this big metropolitan area and Richmond is literally the defeated seat of power of the Confederacy. And like, they have their own colleges, they have their own art scenes, they have their own venues, but like a lot of people kind of go to Richmond and kind of want to just upgrade and like kind of make the leap to DC. And then from there to New York or LA, like it's definitely not the place you go to make it big. Right. Yeah, it's uh, it's I think it looks like it's a place you go to uh, to die. <laughs> no, it's it's a fine town. It's, I've had lovely times in Richmond. Uh, great, great, really? great you comedy audience. I've had a really fun times. In oh, Richmond. cool. Uh, yeah, I wish we could. I want to go there now because the fucking Guar Bar, which oh. we'll talk about later on. I've died to go to the Guar Bar. Honestly, the vegan appetizers look incredible at the Guar Bar. <laughs> I was thing. like looking at some pictures. Yeah, it's like kind of fancy, but it's a dive. They got a they got like a fried soy kind of nugget that they call the Hail Satan, like Satan, like the the <laughs> vegan meat substitute. It's very good. Love it. Gotta love it. So, so going back to Brocky, Brocky forms a punk outfit around this time called Death Piggy. And this is finally a band that gets some traction with folks in the scene. People are like actually kind of forming around Death Piggy. And he gets a first taste of being the center of a scene a little bit. And I think that really helps him propel forward with these next ideas. And this, of course, too, is always a fun story. We're about to find out how the, how the dumb side <laughs> thing becomes like, which, by the way, Believe it or not, back in the day, last podcast of the left was kind of the like silly side mm-hmm. project thing, and it ends up catching traction and taking off. Well, similar story here with Guar at the bottling plant. Dave Broccoli, Dave Broccoli. <laughs> I always say it was Dave Broccoli. Brocky meets Hunter Jackson and Chuck Varga. These are two major players you in the group. Meet. And it- I would say we're foisted together. By fate, because as you mentioned, the uh, abandoned uh, milk bottling plant uh, was in it's this I was I believe it was called the Richmond Dairy was this as as we described this abandoned industrial building with uh, built during much headier times in Richmond's history. The whole building is kind of ramparted by these large stone milk bottles on all sides. Obviously, the dairy had shut down years before. It was in the middle of the inner city that had been devastated by white flight. Just poverty, crime, squalor everywhere. And just as an attempt to keep the lights on, whoever owned the dairy was like, we'll rent it out to all the art students and artists in the area so they have a place to rehearse and in studio space and whatever. And it was literally... Brocky's rehearsal space with Death Piggy, and it was Hunter Jackson's uh, kind of art studio while he was preparing for a little uh, science fiction independent picture that he was working on called Scum Dogs of the Universe. That's right. Uh, he did name his production house, the DIY production house between Jackson and Varga. He did name it the Slave Pit. Uh, and yeah, they're working on and they have all these cool props. You, you can almost see the 80s movie with like the magical music playing mm-hmm. when uh, when Brocky enters the Slave Pit mm-hmm. art studio for the first time and like grabs like a weird like disembodied head and like, a you know, a giant gear. And he's <laughs> like, we could do something with this, you know. And uh, so, yeah, he He's immediately like really into the stuff they're making. And so he's like, hey, 
I want to like bring more to my live shows with Death Piggy, and could you like build me this or that? And and so they they start out making some things for his Death Piggy shows, and Brocky then gets the idea to use these amazing elaborate costumes that Varga and Jackson had already made for Scum Dogs of the Universe. To uh, and essentially what he wants to do is he's always Brocky's always doing everything with like a sense of humor, right? He wants to open for himself with a fake mm-hmm. band. And that fake band was called G W A A A R R R G G H H L L L G H. And this is in 1984. For the record, the pronunciation of ARG is like something exclusively in the minds of kids that read way too many comic books. Yes. And no, they don't use ARG in books. They yes. don't use ARG on movies. That is something unique to American comic books. And the very, I like, so from the get-go. Something that only happens when Kathy's date uh, cancels on her last minute. You know, yeah, Or exactly. when Lucy removes the football from Charlie Brown's uh, yes. field of kicking. Indeed. And he just dies. He d- Lucy kills him every single time. So this band, this wild ragtag band, the initial lineup is Ben Eubanks on vocals, Brocky on guitar, along with Steve Douglas, Chris Bopst, Jim Thompson on drums, and Hunter Jackson. And the thing is, this joke band really starts to outshine Death Piggy, like literally to the point where Guar ends up playing, and then uh, in between uh, bands... They're noticing people like just straight up leaving the venue mm-hmm. before Death Piggy. And they're like, holy shit. And 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 this this Guar project really becomes the thing. They start putting on these like really spe- these special event shows where they're doing this stuff. They're bringing on these like giant props and doing these like stage performance piece things in between songs, uh, terrible songs, horrible, awful songs. <laughs> and during these next few years, they lose. I'm sorry, for an example of the level of fidelity that we are dealing with within this early era of Guar. April, if you could throw in, you know what, Guar's theme. album hell O, uh get it hell O, uh the album that has literally caveat emptor on the uh on the label art literally buyer beware like fuck you for thinking this is gonna be anything <laughs> yeah i obviously i love the, the line we'll eat your car. <laughs> i mean that's so crazy that'd be crazy to see you know it's a fun image so yeah, they they during these next few years they lose and gain member after member. They play a lot of local shows. They make a name for themselves in Virginia with these incredibly theatrical performances. Hunter said, "I wanted Guar to be like a pizza that combined all the geeky stuff I was into in one big head-on collision that splatters all over anyone standing too close." And that's really what it is. It's this onslaught of nerdy 
uh, horror fan sensibilities. This just like massive, just bag of goo of just all these different things combined uh, lovingly into this stage show. And God, it's so weird to think about like the original Scum Dogs of the Universe movie that Peter, that Peter Jackson, Jesus, uh, that <laughs> that'd be amazing. <laughs> yeah, Honestly, he should. I wish. Um, that uh, Hunter Jackson was working on was like kind of this, like, you know, it had fun costumes, had this very like peewee rock and roll sensibility, but it was just about what if space aliens, you know, warriors landed in Richmond and instead of conquering the world, they got distracted by like joining a rock band and getting a day job and having a girlfriend. It's just like this sneering kind of like normie shit, like kind of thing. You're describing Coneheads minus the band. (laughs) I mean, that's not bad. It is a little Coneheads. <laughs> you know, Brocky, for all the love that Death Piggy uh, had in the scene, it would have just been like a footnote in like, oh, here's some weird hardcore bands that like, you know, had some fucked up crazy songs and like combining it just like really just this pure happenstance, this actual you got peanut butter in my chocolate moment, like just completely changed all these people's lives. And from the beginning, like, there is this push and pull with, like, the slave pit being this collective of, and my heart goes out to these people, like, nerds that went to art school thinking they'll learn how to make cool comic books and instead getting yelled at by their graphic design professor for not getting the serifs on their fonts right. Like, they immediately started producing comic books and, like, all these zines and all this shit. There's amazing stuff you can find uh, sometimes through less than legal sources of the original Slave Pit funnies over the years. And like these are really funny, really talented, really crazy comics that uh, one of my favorite is uh, one from uh, Mike Gorman called A Guy Rips Another Guy's Leg Off and Beats Him to Death with It Funnies, (laughs) in which uh, a man approaches another man and says, hey, I'm going to rip your leg off and beat you to death with it. He then proceeds to do so. (laughs) <laughs> so when they go in to record Hello, the lineup is Dave Brocky on lead vocals is Odorous Arungus, Mike Bishop is Beefcake the Mighty on bass, Dewey Rowell playing lead guitars Flatus Maximus, Rob Mosby on drums as Nippolis Erectus, mm-hmm. and lastly Steve Douglas as Balzac the Jaws of Death playing rhythm guitar and singing backing vocals. So for the record, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's to differentiate the different characters, uh, Beefcake the Mighty is the one wearing the girder-shaped Roman helmet. Yeah, with all the spikes. uh, (laughs) I'm sorry, these names. Balzac, the Jaws of Death, is the one wearing the giant bear trap. Uh, which is one of, I feel like the, one of the, like besides Odorous himself, the most iconic member of Guar. Yeah. Um, if you know, like think about members of Guar, I'd be like a bear trap guy. Uh, (laughs) um, Flatus Maximus, uh, the one whose gimmick is he farts a lot when has like big, uh, bony shoulder pads and stuff. (laughs) And Nippolis Erectus. Nippolis Erectus, not, uh, as much a mainstay character. Nippolis Erectus did not quite make it into the canon as deeply as other characters. But either way, we've really, we're really already there with a lot of the characters that would end up being, 
continuing all throughout because uh, when a different member would join, they would take on the role mm-hmm. until we get to more tragic circumstances later in this episode. Uh, also, we should note that Hunter ends up taking a sabbatical from the band. He gets a art job in Detroit and ends up going off there to work, I think, in film production mm-hmm. for a little while. And so he's like not in the band at this point. It's really weird. The band is constantly oscillating in terms of members like in weird ways. And Hunter, who is such a mainstay in terms of uh, the art department as well as the performance stuff as, oh, what is his name? Mechanica. What's his... Uh, Techno Mechanica. Uh, Techno Mechanica. Uh, and is such a big part of like the plots and everything of these Guar shows. So when they're asked to make an album, um, I forget the name of the uh, record company that hits Oh, oh my, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. My apologies to Hunter Jackson. I did not mean to get your name wrong. It is Techno Destructo is the name of his character. Yes. Hated arch villain of yes. War. Who yes, routinely absolutely. will sing songs about how no one appreciates me and I hate how every guard is so full of themselves and I should be the center of attention, which uh, if you look at the history of the band, it's not really a stretch for <laughs> what his mindset was a lot of the time. They, they, they were almost seem like taken aback that a record company was like, hey let's record an album. They're like, really? Why? Why would we do that? That's ridiculous. Our, our songs suck. Uh, and most, most parties involved, like look at this album as like, I think, I think they mo- mostly like to look at scum dogs. The universe is their true first album. This is kind of like a launching pad album for them to tour off of, but they end up uh, making it. So it's very, very punk inspired. We're not quite doing like metal or even quote unquote metal, uh, that we get to even with just the next album, but it really, releases in 1988 and off of that they're able to tour around the country hunter said it was very much like being part of a pirate crew where our ship was a school bus painted gray and we traveled from city to city and fought a huge battle and got all bloody then loaded up the ship and moved out to the next show i knew that there was a whole world of crazy people out there who were into the same weirdo shit i was i used video and comics to let fans know that there was this whole world of guar full of interesting characters that were funny and scary. And this spectacle would be brought to like weird, different types of venues, like very bizarre, uh, uh, you know, places like VFW calls and shit. Yeah. And, and, they would just make this insane mess and they prided themselves on it didn't matter the venue. It didn't matter the space. They would bring the same intense show everywhere. And people were shocked. People were floored. Yeah. People didn't know how to react. They were just like, what the fuck is this? This is crazy. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's gonna be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. 
one of the things is seeing a Guar show in a small venue, they are larger than life. They are busting through like the, the walls. There is so much happening and so much movement and violence and chaos all like happening at the same time that if you are there just for, you know, the next week, it's going to be Danny Stevens and the shoegaze squad. Like you would not even, you would have a life changing experience. And it's sometimes a little bit silly uh, looking at like festival footage of Guar where like they're all so spread out and even something as crazy as Gorgor, the massive T-Rex, like uh-huh. just seems dwarfed by the vet. It feels yeah. like the perfect place to see, like if you can see Gore in as little a space as possible, have them fill your entire field of vision, like literally drowning in the blood pools. Like that is the ideal way to see uh, Guar. And God, those stories from the early days of like the footage of them in the school bus, stuffed to the brim with cots and bunk beds, with Brocky like doing D&D campaigns to fill the time and like comic books and junk food just piling up in pot like everywhere. Yeah, they definitely likened it to like uh, electrical aid acid tests, like Ken Kesey's mm-hmm. band of uh, mischief makers traveling around in a very similar fashion in a renovated school bus and just bringing these this insane spectacle from town to town to town. And during all these years of touring, they start really honing all their art sh- shop stuff. They talk a lot about they had to learn a lot of lessons. Props would break constantly. How to how to like keep things stable and running from town to town to town and and how how uh you know the logistics of all of that is so insane. You have another major player, Matt McGuire, um, joins uh, with Hunter Jackson. Matt McGuire was his like protege, essentially his assistant for the longest time. They have this really tight partnership, and a lot of the amazing stuff that they created for the shows came from these two guys. For sure, uh, Don uh, Dracolich, aka Sleazy P. Martini, the fake <laughs> manager character, by the way, that unfroze them from the the ice in Antarctica, mm-hmm. and 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 he's just a piece of shit manager that just like robs people and like tricks people, whatever. Wearing a pompadour yeah. the size of a of a fucking ten year old on his head, so over the top. This dirty manager character. He said, "We became a more professional organization, moving." into a larger studio was a big help. We started to add more people at that point, probably more people than we really needed. We toured with like 18 to 20 people sometimes. It made making money nearly impossible. Uh, And Matt McGuire said, it's when it really uh, started to become something. The characters came into their own around the next album, Scum Dogs. All of a sudden, it was like, there is a record deal. That time solidified what Guar would become. One more addition to the crew that really needs to be uh, acknowledged is Danielle Stamp, who was the uh, the the most iconic of the handful of quote unquote Guar girls that would join them on stage. Stamp uh, through her character of Slymenstra Hyman would uh, appear in kind of this spiky brass bikini with like spooky ghoul makeup and just shake her fucking moneymaker harder than I've ever seen anyone just like murdering people live on stage, shooting menstrual blood at the audience while doing a handstand, doing fire dances, doing backup vocals. She is almost as key 
to the Guar State show as any other member could be. Yeah. Even though she wasn't technically like tasked with playing an instrument throughout any of it. So she's such a badass and she just it really comes off in the documentary. Like I just I want to like hang out with her so bad. But like she was integral to the plot. It was her that like awoke the ancient dinosaur Gorgor. It was her who like murders half of their enemies. Uh, I think it's yeah during like the big techno mechanico destructo fuck i keep getting it wrong uh fight scenes it would be her that like kills everybody in the in the fucking room you know and she was like up there for decades which is a very impressive thing you know a lot of the other guys in the band had to cover themselves with like armor or like painted on abs or something but like she was there fucking Oh, natural a lot of the times. And she is one of the most incredible performers and really just brings this extra level of insanity. Like, it's one thing to be like, oh, look at these Dungeons and Dragons nerds playing dress up. But once like fucking Slamenstra Hyman's on stage, you're like, is this a cult? (laughs) Is I kind of like what is happening? So they get a deal with English label Master Records. And for the first time, they get to work in a professional studio, albeit still in Richmond, the one studio in Richmond, essentially, that is on a professional level. And they work with this producer that helps them stretch out their creativity in the studio and hone in on their new sound. I would refer to this album as supposed metal more than straight up metal because at this point they want to make an al- a metal album, but they weren't as well versed in making that kind of music mm. as they get later on. So this is really a bunch of punk dudes getting together to make what they think metal is. Yes. So the band ends up uh, getting a showcase show in New York City. And that is where they met with Metal Blade Records, which is a new label looking for their first big American act. They purchased the right to distribute Scum Dogs in the U.S., which releases in 1990. President of Metal Blade Records, Michael Flakey, said what the record did was almost present a live show and introduce all of these characters. People now say it's one of the benchmark records in shock rock history. And that's quite a statement with the likes of Alice Cooper out there. Guar just took it to a whole new level. And Hunter Jackson said it was a point where we got all the elements of the show together, how to make the blood shoot 15 feet, how to build dynamic suits that look awesome from the back row, how to write a show that was uh, has a beginning, middle and end crammed full of funny social commentary and interesting characters. You say funny it's social, funny comment. social commentary, say, right. Jake. It's hilarious. But most importantly, it's still fun, even if you don't pick up on any of that. It's clever, well thought social comedy. This Jake should Young. be the part in the episode where... <laughs> If you are curious about Guar's work, I massive asterisk, massive content warning. You know, we're talking about the album Scum Dogs of the Universe. There's an entire fucking sketch, I would say, called Slaughterama, hosted by the character of Sleazy P. Martini, where they drop more F slurs than I've ever heard in my entire life. It is, you know, there's a lot of scatological things happening, a lot of Uh, I'm going to call it uh, making light of sexual assault happening, a lot of violence to minors happening, and those themes do not really slow down until maybe the most modern era. So uh, if that is the kind of thing that you really don't want to be exposed to... I don't know if it's quite worth it. That being said, there are some incredible songs on there. I mentioned Salamanizer, which is a very fun song. Maggots, which is incredible. April, you can get a bit of Maggots with the amazing like weird riff of a fly buzzing and it adds to the musical thing. Just a little bit of that. Maggots! 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 
And uh, maybe their like most popular song, the I'm going to say upsettingly catchy Sick of You. I really like that song it's a lot. It was not, the one I was going to mention. Your socks, they smell. Your feet, they stink. You never take a bath. Your nose, it runs. You bust your buns. You always finish last. But then once it gets that chorus, man, April, just play it. It's like a Shel Silverstein poem, you know? It's great. <laughs> Your face is gross, you weak white toast, you don't know what to do. And just your luck, you really suck, that's all I'm sick of you. It's, it's catchy, though. It's fun. It's good. It's you know, very I, fun. I've had it in my head this entire time. Yeah, it's definitely more than just like the spectacle. It's obviously, they're very gimmicky. It's very much a gimmick, uh, all of this. But, but the music's there. The music is there. And the music improves as they go because they keep fucking putting out albums for decades. It's crazy. What they did? What, what did they just celebrate the thirtieth anniversary of of Scum Dogs? Because yeah, it came out in nineteen ninety. Mm-hmm. So it's just insane how long they've been making albums and touring. I mean, it's wild. No original members, of course, but still. So at the time of the album's release, grunge is breaking out as the rock standard of the day. Guar could not have been any different from that aesthetic and stage presence. Hunter Jackson said, The record showed that a whole bunch of driven, multi-talented people can strive together toward a common goal. Through determination and perseverance, you can achieve a lot more than one person struggling alone against the odds. I'm proud of what I was able to achieve through Guar because it was against the odds in spite of opposition and in the face of all the people who didn't believe we could do it or just thought it was stupid. We did it anyway. So this album comes out in 1990, and hilariously enough, uh, later in that year, they decide to do a show in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, and at that show, Brocky is arrested for obscenity, and his cuttlefish of Cthulhu was confiscated as a result. It's a fish, Jake. It's not a penis. I just don't understand. Just because it vaguely re- resembles one doesn't mm. make it lewd what he does with it on stage. Well, so what really got the ire of the cops was an onstage uh, little skit they do, a fun little uh, yuck up where a priest is brought on stage, a uh, character that uh, was very popular in their lore at the time. I forget exactly what I even it's even in Phallus in Wonderland, but uh, he's uh, just a rampant, horny pedophile. Yes. Uh, he just uh, the joke is the priest assaults young boys. That is the joke. And as payback, Guar flips him upside down where a giant rubber ass with a uh blood red asshole is visible to the crowd and they shove swords and crucifixes and just really dig it around while blood is splattering everywhere. Yes. And it was that particular Cultural, yes, scene. social commentary, Jake. I, I mean, weird. I mean, it took, <laughs> it took people long enough. Guar was there from the get go. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I can't believe they did. The people could not hear Guar's warning. <laughs> that was what made the cops go, Hey, that's not cool. But the funny thing was, is that because the costumes are so elaborate and everything, they were able to just be like, I don't know who that was yeah. who was dressed in that costume. So they wanted to arrest that guy, but they couldn't, so they went after Odorous. It was, uh, yeah, no, the multiple members talk about the weird sight of the incredibly grossed out cop uh, carrying the penis-like cuttlefish away in a five-gallon bucket, <laughs> never to be seen again. Some say it still is sitting in a evidence locker. I hope so. 
You got to understand, this is a, a time of a huge culture war centered around the arts, uh, particularly in North Carolina. You've got Republican Senator Jesse Helms, a major force in that. There was all this pressure to crack down on on evil artists peddling their wares. Guar ends up being banned from North Carolina for a year. They wouldn't return to Charlotte for another four or five to play a gig. The Charlotte incident was the inspiration for their third album, America Must Be Destroyed. And that album was the basis of the first Guar movie we referred to earlier, Phallus in Wonderland. The film centers around Odorous's cuttlefish of Cthulhu being stolen and their fight against the morality squad and the squad's leader, the evil father, Bohab. Also, uh, this is the origin of the term Gore uses for their fans, which are bohabs, <laughs> which is shorthand for habitually boring, as Gore, of course, belittles and hates their fans in keeping with the characters. Uh, so I, I, you can find uh, Phallus in Wonderland on uh, the Internet Archive, archive.org, in wonderful VHS quality. And um, it is a lot. It is, uh, you know, there's... Uh, Parents getting murdered. There is a pedophile priest. There's a weird version of Captain America. Uh, lengthy sketches. Uh, all sorts of slurs he can't say anymore. Uh, and also incredible music videos. Maybe don't. Maybe skip past. Uh, Have you seen me? Which is a jazzy then rocking thing about abducting and killing children in mass. Uh, at which point, one of the slaves um, aggressively jerks off into a child's cereal bowl, and then he, the child eats it. Um, but you know, we're only watch that part. I mean, whatever. <laughs> I don't know what your deal is. Uh, it is. It is. I I watched it very cautiously on a plane. <laughs> I cannot believe you watched that on a plane. You're a madman, Jake. I really. I I did not think that. I did not know how bad of an idea that was at the time. But it is full of uh, of the era parody. It is an incredible snapshot of 90s counterculture and the prevailing aesthetics of that time. But it is it has this amazing homemade just gonzo energy that is very infectious. So, like, it's I definitely would recommend giving it a look. See if anything we've been describing so far uh, is is uh, tickling your your you're fancy? Yeah. That's the least gross thing you can tickle. <laughs> uh, I want to take a brief pause here in the history of Guar to talk about their process. So here we've got the concept being molded full on for their tours moving forward. Create an album that tells a story, then base the stage show off of that and possibly even a movie as well to combine the whole thing. As for their process, first off, there's the conceptual phase, according to Dave Brocky. We'll write a script or a treatment or a synopsis or whatever you want to call it. We'll decide what the the characters are, and then basically the art department and the band will split into two groups. The art department will start working on the show and the costumes and the sets, and the band will start writing the music and recording the album. When the album's all done and the costumes are all done, then the two groups will reemerge with each other. We'll do some videos, we'll start rehearsing the show, and then we'll hit the road again. And collaboration is key in this respect, and the band and art department would be having brainstorm sessions on the road like during sound checks, stuff like that, to come up with new ideas. Brocky said, 
We're trying to get everybody on the same page. I have to know what the story is, what the main characters are, what everybody wants to do. And you got like 12 different people in this organization, and we all have very strong ideas. You don't want to start writing an album until those ideas have coalesced in one direction, because you might find yourself writing songs that have nothing to do with what's going on, and that's happened before. In fact, that's happened many times. So if the group ever reaches an impasse, they will hold a vote and leave it to majority rule. And it's a very... so it's a very democratic process and again reminds me a lot of how we tried to do things in Murder Fist where there was no like specific leader I think definitely looking back Dave Brocky is is to the point where people left the band around it kind of placed himself in that role but at the end of the day it was at least always under the guise of we all are this one unit Mm -hmm. that that creates this show that everybody's voice must be heard well I mean it is and it isn't because even the even you know the art department is like, I mean, they did call us art slaves yes. and they kind of treated us as such. <laughs> yes. And I, it was kind of incredible the conditions people worked under to make these movies happen. And Phallus of Wonderland, by the way, a good example, they didn't have a director. There was, uh, they they tried to work with the director yeah, and the, they immediately got pissed off. I believe the story was it was uh, Metal Blade gave them like a couple hundred thousand dollars to make a music video and brought in like a fancy pants director and he was immediately so traumatized by their shenanigans that he, they left and it was the collective that was like why spend all this money on a single music video when we could make a whole fucking movie man yeah 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 just crazy so everybody's just working together building props all throughout the night then also hitting the set and do acting and then going back i mean it just seemed insane their their work process but it got him a grammy now yeah this movie phallus wonderland actually gets nominated for a grammy award which i still don't understand so they actually get to attend the grammys that year and this is what puts them finally in the position to actually gain industry support and they get that interest from warner bros records so Guar- uh, i believe it was was Warner Brothers actually kind of bought the or like consumed or got the distribution rights to Metal Blade's whole catalog? Yes, they do that. They can offer Guar way bigger distribution for their material uh, and also get their next movie made, uh, which would be titled Skullhead Face. And the next album was called This Toilet Earth. And they immediately get to work on this album. They're super excited to turn it in. They do so at the end of 1993. However, there is a problem. Warner Bros. had a big issue with a song titled BDF. And that stands for Baby Dick Fuck. And I don't get it because the lyrics are, you know, they're not that bad. I mean, they're just, uh, as they're just listed on the website genius.com. Uh, baby Dick Fuck. <laughs> baby Dick Fuck. You take your tongue, curl it into a U. Take a young child who knows not what you do. All right. We don't have to get it. You can go read the lyrics on your own. All right. It's not good. It's very upsetting. I mean, it's very purposely upsetting. It's the time for it. That was the 90s. The 90s was like, how upsetting can we be? Uh, And hilariously enough, when Warner Bros. is like, I give you an ultimatum, remove this one song from the album or lose the deal entirely. And by the way, not a great song. Not Not a great song. And not a plot song. Yeah. So, like, maybe if they were like, look, there's a major plot point that happens in this. That doesn't. But they go, you know what? We fuck you, <laughs> industry lords, executives. We stand by our art. Oh, Baby dick fuck stays on the album. 
And this is a massive turning point for Guar's lifespan. Mm-hmm. This is a giant moment that changed the course of history for this band. Artist Matt McGuire said, Guar has always been a freedom of expression. If somebody would come in and go, well, you can't really do this, you can't really do that, I personally, and I know a lot of our bandmates are the same way, would say, fuck you, no way, man. We're going to do exactly what we want to do. Drummer Brad Roberts, a.k.a. Jiz Mac Dagusha, <laughs> said, the difference, I think, between most bands and Guar is that we're doing it for the sake of the art. We're not in a band to be famous. And by the way, by art, he's referring to the song <laughs> Baby Dick Fuck. <laughs> we're not in a band to be famous or meet girls or stuff like that. We made the art we wanted, and it just turned out that there was a lot of subculture freaks out there like us that loved all that stuff. It's it's living proof. People love horror, dinosaurs, dungeons, and dragons. But there was like this moment in the 90s. I mean, I know for a fact, uh, you know, it was Beavis and Butthead's favorite band. Mike Judge made the distinct like choice that, like, what do the two most despicable idiotic 14 year old boys love most in this world it's guar and Beavis and butthead was a massive influence for an entire generation oh man i remember uh, actually I frog baseball every afternoon with my buddies i stand corrected i said it was empire records no way dude i definitely the first time i saw guar was on beavis and butthead and was like blown away by both what guar was and by the fact that beavis and butthead weren't talking shit about it because they talk shit about every single music video and so it was like this hilarious moment in the show where they were like this is the finally they like a band mm-hmm. and this is the band you know especially for the song Sodom a go-go yeah. which was a very uh Gulf War centered riff on modern politics uh, I'm sorry April if you can just give us a little bit of that tasty horn section I think that would uh really give you a sense of where we are right now So even though they totally just threw away bags of money on the table uh, standing by their laurels, they still do uh, grow in popularity at this time. Uh, this is the mid-90s. They're getting on shows like the Joan Rivers show, Jerry Springer. You know, it's all this like, again, they're playing off of this outrage, this mm-hmm. uh, culture war that's happening with within the country that's like coming to a giant large head because there's this giant counterculture movement happening and the counterculture movement is literally like go fuck yourself like <laughs> it's you know what i mean it's a lot of people i mean i look back at it and i'm like man that was a bit aggressive <laughs> we were so mean we were just so like you everyone sucks mm-hmm. i suck you suck our main guy the leader blew his brains out <laughs> you know what i mean with kurt cobain like it was like just this dark time in counterculture and like religious uptight conservatives were like also is a weird kind of big time for mega churches Mm -hmm. in that community as well and man it was just totally butting heads completely left and right and then the media is loving that Mm -hmm. so 
and it's also the heyday of talk shows and manufactured outrage on you know daytime TV mm-hmm. was was huge at this time. So it's interesting. It's it, Guar will always be interesting for this and for the decisions they've made. And I know that the members of later talked about like we should have taken the fucking song yeah. off. We should have got a little more mainstream because it's all there. The show, the stage show, is there. Mm-hmm. It's all ripe for like bigger and bigger popularity and arena shows like i mean could you the thing that makes me the most sad about it like i don't mind that they stuck to the laurels i think it's actually is it's respectable in a lot of ways but i i want to see the fucking guar plays madison square garden Mm. massive spectacle event that that would it would have been right yeah i know you say that they're more fun in a smaller venue but if you could imagine they were given that hundreds of thousands of dollars to put on a gigantic, you know, pop star level stage show. That would have been fun as hell to watch. The, are you, you're talking about the Guar Eras tour. I'm talking <laughs> about talking Guar about. Eras, where we finally get them all. Oh my God, did you get Baby Dick Fuck as the secret song? <laughs> <laughs> Things start taking a dark turn for the band. As the 90s move on, uh, there's traumatic events, there's band members coming in and out, there's things coming to a head. So the first big turning point, second Second big turning point, actually, for the band. A traumatic incident happens in the mid-90s. Their car is run off the road by folks with guns who attempted to carjack them. They fail the carjacking, but they do manage to uh, shoot Peter Lee, who played Flatus Maximus, in the gut. And he clearly, obviously, um, a big moment in his life, something that he didn't, you know, especially back in that day, didn't really address, kept things moving, kept things moving so swiftly that he is playing in the band with a colostomy bag on stage you know even the band talked about kind of uh in the documentary how another like eye-opening moment is he gets shot and they have to like work on a music video like the next day i think Mm -hmm. it was or do a photo shoot or something and they all go and do it yeah no he's missing from the album art or they got someone to just wear the costume yeah it was for the cover and um instead of like rescheduling that and being like hey man let's focus on peter and his recovery like they just went ahead and did it anyway and got got like a stand in and that was a bit of an indication of like hey as a whole we are amazing but the way we treat each other as individually is maybe less amazing and so that sends Peter off on a bit of a tailspin eventually because he's suffering from all this PTSD from the incident and he's not really addressing it and he's just drinking and drugging instead. During this time is a very interesting for the band in terms of their sound. They get really experimental and weird. They've been really honing their metal sound up to this point and uh, the album Ragnarok uh, ends up being a very keyboard heavy album. There are a lot of different vocalists on the album. There's even a really embarrassing, but it's kind of embarrassing on purpose it's like a it's like a parody of a of of rap at the time but sleazy p martini does a uh a rap and it kind of sounds like the dk rap april Hitter! god damn it I 
I was going to say Ragnarok, I, one of my favorite tracks is the Odorous and Slimenstra uh, uh, duo song, Fire in the Loins, which establishes that the two characters are actually brother and sister, and they're about to fucking have babies. I love it. Gotta love it. The The album after that, Carnival of Chaos, really branches out genre-wise. You've got hard rock, you've got a country track, you've got jazz. Is that Sex Cow? Is that the one where Sex Cows comes off of? I believe so. Or is that the really bad album we're about to talk about? Oh, maybe that. I think it might be the next one. They also started a side project called X-Cops off of the joke of just like, what if these like cops... We're all on stage playing metal music. Wouldn't that be funny? And so they 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 start touring with X Cops. Like things are really moving. Like they're not slowing down, even though they're not exactly like growing in uh, terms of like money and these sorts of things. Like they're still just this machine is now like fully operational. But members are coming, members are going, and members are starting to clash. And that clash comes to a head with the album "We Kill Everything." This album is so bad in the band's opinion that they. They rarely play any of the songs live. And later when Guar opened up an internet forum, they even forbade anyone on there to mention the album. <laughs> they hate this album. I think I think if when they hear this album, all they hear is a lot of fighting, infighting in the band, clashing issues, <laughs> especially between Dave Brocky and Hunter. Essentially the head of the art and the head of the music sides just both just start to not be able to stand each other. And it does sound like for Dave Brocky is kind of interesting. He, he was, he was a part of creating a major part of creating this giant, like almost like socialist experiment or something with like a, in a band, but he's also like, got to be the center of attention at all times. Mm-hmm. You know, it kind of goes counter to what the general philosophy is of what they're building. You know, uh, Mike Bishop, uh, who is the current lead singer and former uh, Beefcake the Mighty, talks about how like the famous Joan Rivers interview, he had worked out all these bits with Brocky like before. Yep. And he just was forced to sit there in horror as Brocky just like bulldozed him and said all the funny lines that he had written for himself and like just kind of being like, yeah, that's Brocky. Uh, what are you going to do? <laughs> so and and I think Hunter wanted more, you know, attention and more mm more you know given more of a voice in the group and i just think i think they just they just couldn't stand well, each other by the rocky end. would be the one that like after they got off stage he wasn't there to party he would immediately strip off his outfit and just start hawking comic books and posters and like weird sculptures even to the point of like going out to the parking lot and trying to push all of these like homemade art objects to the audience mm-hmm. more so than like anything that was happening on stage he definitely draws the most comic content and has like t- just every issue of Slate Pit Funnies is just full of Hunter's art. Weirdly enough, Brocky has an amazing short story in Slate Pit number three called Giddy Up Goulash featuring his character War Ghoul. Nice. Which is kind of this like undead warrior that has been present for all of like man's inhumanity and violence. Uh, it's this incredibly fucked up thing taking place in the Battle of Stalingrad, which ends with the Russian forces feasting on uh, Nazi body stew. It's fucking crazy. But on We Kill Everything, 
they return to a punk rock influence, which is maybe part of it because Brocky's so resentful of punk rock. So it's kind of interesting that he would go back to it. And its lyrics were influenced. Brocky's resentful of everything. Any single time you're in an interview with him, he is just shitting on any and all targets. He is absolutely just like, sometimes he's incredibly funny. Sometimes he's like incredibly, you know, making a lot of good points. But like one of the things that I just cannot get over is in any clip I've seen of him, he's just like, uh, there's one thing I saw of him out of makeup, just like railing on Blink-182 and right. uh, just and uh, Alien Ant Farm. I guess Anything that was that was popular era. at the yeah. time. Well, yeah, I mean, we love to hate that. Yeah, exactly. It was, it was the era of hate, man. It was. I talk about this all the time, how like I love so much about that growing up in that grunge era. Like there's so much good music that came out of it, but the attitude kind of sucked a little like uh, at times. A lot of times where you'd be with a group of people and it was literally about how hard you could hate on shit, mm. you know, which is like the opposite of what I do with this show now. Mm-hmm. And I mean, maybe a, a generally largely a reaction to that because I missed out on a lot of cool shit because of that need to hate everything. So we will we kill everything. Also, though, the lyrics were influenced by their fans feeling they weren't being disgusting enough on the last album, <laughs> Carnival of Chaos, which just led to these just awful songs about bestiality. Oh, you're they, talking about uh, Fuck a Fish, I believe, is the... Uh, oh, I, yeah. I think that's one of them. Yeah. It's just like kind of a brain-dead album. Dave Brocky said, we were going through the most problems with personal changes at the time, and we could not keep people in the band long enough to write a fucking song. We ended up using a lot of material that probably would have gone to one of my jokier side projects. For me, that was the roughest album, because Guar was not really sounding the way I wanted it to sound. I was having a hard time getting it to the point and almost despairing of ever getting there when we did that record. And so, yeah, a lot of the fundamental songwriters left and metal people left. So Brocky was given too much power in terms of the songwriting. And so that's why everything's like, it's it's like you need, Guar needs to be a balance of the fun lore, mm-hmm. actual metal, like metal music and jokey silliness, yeah. right? Like, but but this one was like way too much the Brocky side of the songwriting, uh, for sure. And even the songs are indicative of. There's lyrics in the songs speaking towards like I'm just this puppet that comes into town and sprays you with blood and leaves. <laughs> I think there's just there's resentment mm-hmm. uh, kind of starting to form around the fact that you know essentially once they took that stand against Warner Brothers, they they drew that line in the sand and essentially said we're never going to get bigger than this, you know. Mm-hmm. We'll never we'll never move to the next level because we'll never remove baby dick fuck from the album, you know. And and I think they leaned even harder into that in ways that just was like not great, you know. I mean, honestly, when I listened to it, I was really expecting it to be fucking awful, but the punk sound is like not that bad at least. Like it's 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 still like So you're saying there's like something, you know, uh, penile drip has yeah. its uh, exactly well I'm I'm completely ignoring the lyrics <laughs> the names of the songs and what they're about but literally I'm just saying the pure punk sound of it if you had no vocals whatsoever or anything like that or if you're just listening to the sound of the voices and not what they're saying uh, is not bad mm-hmm. I, I it, to be I don't think it's so bad it's like we do not speak of this album at the very least but I understand why they don't play pretty much any of the songs the loss of Pete Lee once he left to to go get his shit together and get off of uh, the booze and everything that really took its toll on the band. The music 
big. It, it just became too silly. Also, Hunter Jackson ends up leaving the band uh, in the year 2000, just after this album's released. Hunter clashing way too much with Brocky and... Um, by the time Hunter was out, uh, he really just hated Dave Brocky at this yeah. point. And that's something he's carried with him really all this time. I don't know what he would say today because he does, we will talk about how he kind of comes back around to the band after Brocky's passing, but it's not a good scene. Longtime member Danielle Stamp also exits at this time. Uh, Slamintra uh, Hyman, of course, and... Um, also, uh, she had issues with Brocky as well, like stealing the spotlight on stage, that sort of well, thing. Well, yeah, she was a incredible performer and she went on to do uh, a lot of like the, if you remember the 2000s, like burlesque freak show revival that was kind of big at the time. She played a massive part in that scene. Uh, she became obsessed with uh, basically her... It was like the, the the lightning woman act yes. that she was like obsessed with, uh, where so she was like, "They won't let me shoot lightning at the audience." So I've, I guess it I quit. Basically, involved her <laughs> sitting on a metal plate while a Tesla coil pumped a million volts through her body and shot lightning from her body and hands. Like, there's even for Guar, you can't do that. That's too much of a liability. <laughs> so, so there is a triumphant return at least after this album. This album was a huge wake up call for them. Their next. Next album, Violence Has Arrived, and it is a full return to the metal sound. They end up re-upping on their members uh, that are more focused in playing really good metal music. It's a big comeback for them. Everyone, they, they even joked that everyone was relieved that they didn't put out another We Kill Everything. They also finally signed with the new label, DRT Entertainment. They feel that Metal Blade was not really doing good enough with the distribution, but also they didn't like the rest of the label's roster, wouldn't you believe it? So there's of course, because they're hating on mm. literally everything. So they hate the rest of the roster. The album War Party is released in 04 after they made the deal. And again, fans are into it. They continue their path forward with thrash metal. Beyond Hell comes out in 2006 as essentially essentially a rock opera about their journey down to hell to fight Satan. Uh, that's a whole thing. But it's, they're back in their groove, mm -hmm. even though, again, because of that split in the timeline where they refused the Warner Brothers to demands they're never really going to quite like expand no they are living hard on the road just to get by and then splitting the profits amongst a massive collective of musicians and artists and it's getting exhausting and it's taking its toll on people as they are really you know starting to wear, wear thin on the road the road is exhausting i mean they're hitting their 40s yeah. like you know it's 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 rough we're talking the 2010s now the band re-signs with metal blade drt shuts down so they go back to metal blade the next major event comes though with the tragic passing of guitarist Corey smoot who had been performing as flatus maximus since 2002 smoot was found dead on the tour bus due to a coronary artery thrombosis brought on by pre-existing coronary artery disease. As well as, you know, some opiates mm. and other substances found on his person and blood. This event devastates the band and uh, they make the decision that, you know, they've had a lot of people come in as, as the same character. Uh, they're happy to replace when somebody exits the band. But if you die while in the band... The flattest Maximus before him was Zach Blair, who is now the 
guitarist for Rise Against, yes. weirdly enough. Yeah. And uh, but they make the decision that if you're in the band and you die, the character also dies. So so Flatus Maximus fully retired as a character as well. His part in the band is replaced by Cannabis Corpse guitarist Brent Perguson as Pustulus Maximus, starting in late 2012. They released their 13th studio album, uh, Battle Maximus, in 2013, and this would be the last one with frontman Dave Brocky. Brocky's health really just begins to decline. Apparently, you know, he was the first guy to the venue to help set up and the last guy at the venue breaking things down. But then after that, all bets were off. He, he, his body was in a lot of pain. He was just struggling a lot, I think, as he was getting older with this insane grind mm-hmm. that they were doing with these tours. And, uh, and, I, and so, you know, after some time of sobriety, he returns to drinking and drugs. Um, and his body just starts giving out under all this, you know, this push and pull that he's doing. And on March 23rd, 2014, Brocky was found dead by his roommate in his Richmond, Virginia apartment at the age of 50. The cause of death, a heroin overdose. Mike Bishop, a.k.a. Beefcake the Mighty, said, Dave was one of the funniest, smartest, most creative and energetic persons I've known. He was brash, sometimes always crass, irreverent. He was hilarious in every way, but he was also deeply intelligent and interested in life, history, politics, and art. His penchant for scatological humors belied a lucid wit. He was a criminally underrated lyricist and hard rock vocalist. One of the best ever. Thank you, Brocky, for all the crazy shit you did. Thank God you existed so you could do it and I didn't have to. Odorous, enjoy your trip back home. And uh, they end up giving Brocky a full-on Viking funeral. They also had a private ceremony. Yes. It's not like, you know, there was there was one for them and one for the fans. I think the Viking funeral, too, was more for, like, Odorous, yeah. even, than Brocky. And, man, it just obviously that is going to take a lot of wind out of the sails for the band. There's this amazing clip of, uh, you know, a lot of love poured out from across the music industry with condolences and fond memories of David Brocky. Uh, even fans of the of our podcast, when we said we were doing a Guar show, talk about how they met him and he was the most gregarious and nice guy you'd ever meet. Uh, you know, he had made a lot of friends and even w- at his most abrasive, still like had a place in people's hearts. It's Dave Grohl talking about uh, Brocky after th- his passing. It was like, man, you know, I saw one of their first shows in Richmond. Uh, It was crazy. It blew my mind. I like still think about like how it opened up the possibilities of what a rock band could be. And, um, you know, we never really hung out. I did remember seeing an interview uh, where he talked about me and he said that I had teeth pulled so I could suck more industry cock better. (laughs) And like everybody just bursts out laughing. (laughs) And he's like, yeah, we'll miss you, Brock. (laughs) And of course, the guy from Lamb of God has that fond memory of when he went to the uh, Slave Pit Studios and Brocky squirted about eight or so (laughs) hits of acid into his eyeball. (laughs) You know, there's lots of fun tales uh, of that nature. It really is very sweet. I think people, a lot of people say, you know, as much as, you know, the steal the spotlight and all that. And unfortunately, Hunter doesn't have uh, super kind things to say, at least in the documentary. But outside of that, like most everyone says he was just this really sweet guy, you know, and, and, um, uh, a really lovable dude. So the whole, of course, the band is completely devastated. But uh, this amazing thing happens. Mike Bishop, who left the band years ago, originally as Beefcake the Mighty, he decides to return to the band and take on the role of frontman so that Guar can live. 
Matt McGuire said, it was a big decision. I mean, it took a while for us to understand what we needed to do or what we were going to even try to do. We had a bunch of discussions. At certain points, we were talking about folding it in, but that changed once we all started to center on the idea of getting Mike Bishop to take over. That is, in my opinion, the only way it could have worked. Mike Bishop does have, you know, it's not uh, out of the blue. The surviving members, uh, you know, the guy who plays Jizmac, the guy who plays Balzac, were all friends of Bishop's and were in bands with him in the Richmond scene growing up. Bishop has roots in Richmond. Like he had been a uh, really like kind of welcome presence in the band during his time there. He helped evolve their musical chops and like their musical vision. He, even though he had been taking quite a long hiatus by this point in the story, like he had always kind of remained a friend of the band and a welcome kind of member of their community. So when he came in with his new character, uh, Blothar, the uh, kind of uh, big pig-faced antlered barbarian from beyond the stars. Uh, They kind of just picked up the ball and kind of kept running with it. And, uh, you know, I think, (laughs) I think he does a great job. You know, it's not quite the same, but uh, weirdly enough, Mike Bishop, he's, you know, he's an academic. Like I talked about his Ted talk as of the time of this recording, uh, they had recently done an NPR tiny desk concert. Yeah. And like Mike talks about like, where's Nina Totenberg? (laughs) (laughs) You know, like, like he is kind of a, he's a little bit of a lib and it's, you know, he now wears not the cuttlefish, but this like horrifying sea anemone with like two different cockheads that can both shoot blood and piss and come at the audience. They've done the warp tour. They are performing in New York uh, at like this week. And I'm sad I can't see them. You know, they've kept the, the legend of Guar going. And a lot of the people that have like, that had kind of parted ways have like come back into the fold to like keep this dream alive. So, yeah. It's it's kind of an incredible story that this is how we got to what I, we were talking about in the beginning, how, how there's no original members and yet Guar lives on. Brad Roberts said, I think we really did it the right way. And with Bishop's help, we did it the only way that the fans would have respected. And we still get to enjoy making art and music together. Guar made a lot of mistakes in his career, not going mainstream, but that one we got right. <laughs> uh, also, uh, shout outs to the Guarbecue they throw since uh, they've been throwing since 2009, a Richmond, Virginia staple where they have bands. And they put on a giant barbecue event and it's amazing, like a street party. Also, uh, they opened the Guar Bar in Richmond, Virginia in 2015, an upscale dive uh, that I have to go visit. And lately, they have been celebrating the 30 year anniversary, as I mentioned before of scum dogs of the universe and a nice at least a little swan song hunter does rejoin the band four shows at this point um and finally has come back around on the band as a whole i only have one final quote uh, from matt mcguire on guar's uh, approach to political and social commentary anything else jake before we wrap this up i guess it uh i'd be remiss if i didn't acknowledge that uh, the weird parallels that Guar, that doing the research and experiencing Guar for the first time and how it almost uh, rhymes and mirrors uh, my experience with ICP. They had a really good relationship with when, when you know, I was looking up like remembering Dave Brocky mm-hmm. quotes. There's a big one from Violent J about how they inspired them so much in terms of uh, the working, uh, you know, becoming financially stable in the counterculture. But both emerging from cities that were in the throes of economic devastation both uh, really just like not even seeking 
industry approval, but like relishing in almost the open contempt that they got from a lot of their peers and higher ups. Incredibly scatological uh, lyrics, incredibly uh, on the nose political takes and uh, violence. And of course, a stage show completely completely reliant on dousing the entire audience with gallons of weird fluids as it should be it's kind of amazing how these two bands from different angles and but like still with like this weird base of like nerd enthusiasm became these cult phenomena well here's matt mcguire's quote that's one of my big attractions, Zaguar. Everything can have that light shined on it. Nothing is above reproach. It's like, yes, you can deal with these hard subjects or these hard ideas in a way that's not so serious or glum. And you can also enlighten with these ideas. I've always loved that. It's a license to do what you need to do because you can't take yourself too seriously. This life is too short. All right, man. Thank you so much for joining us for our Guar episode. This was such a fucking blast to research this week. And I really got to get to a, a Guar show soon now. It's like I feel it in my bones. Yeah. Thank you, everybody, for uh, supporting. If you'd like to support us further, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. Patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. Uh, for all of your Patreonic needs, uh, for $5 a month, we do weekly bonus episodes. For $15 a month, you can join us. This time around, we watched a bunch of Guar music videos, and it was awesome. Uh, it was rad as hell. So uh, join us in the future for that if you are so inclined. Also, check me out twitch.tv forward slash holdonatorsho, twitch.tv forward slash holdonatorsho. Uh, I'm streaming Monday through Friday. Uh, including Wednesday, uh, Jake and I are doing Tears of a Clown on LPN's Twitch channel, twitch.tv forward slash last podcast network. Every Wednesday at 9 p.m., we do these tier lists. We've been doing a bunch of them on Patreon. We like turned it into a live stream with guests over there. So check us out on that. Jake! Really got to stress that uh, patreon.com slash whizbrew. Hey there. Hi, it's me, Jake. Um, you've been listening to us yuck them up and share information for a little bit of while now. And I know what you're thinking. God, I love these guys. God, I would I would die for these guys. I would go on a highly specific killing spree for these guys. Don't do that. Don't, don't we don't need murder. We don't need violence. All we need is for you to just wander over to patreon.com forward slash whizbrew and just, you know, see what's on offer. And I think you'll like what you'll see there. And maybe just maybe you can become a supporter and help our show immensely. Help us keep the lights on. Help us keep this fun train running. Other than that, uh, go to twitch.tv slash puppet Jared. That's where I do my Thursday cartoon dumpster stream. Uh, it's a rollicking gaze into the uh, weirdest, most batshit cartoons from the 80s, 90s and 2000s. Really enjoying uh, Street Sharks right now. If you have never witnessed a single second of the mutant fish based children's program street sharks now is the time to do it all you got to do go to twitch.tv slash puppet jared and join the fun and hey always remember never stop bruising and keep on whizzing maybe into an audience from a practical effect cuttlefish this show is made possible by listeners like you thanks to our ad sponsors you can support our shows by supporting them for more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. 
It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hi, Max. I wanted to share something with you. I wanted to tell you how grateful I am on how you've embraced your sobriety since day one. I'm grateful for how you changed your life. I'm grateful for the love you have for me. I'm grateful for you. Love, Mom. If your loved one is still struggling with addiction, you might not feel like you'll ever get to grateful. But we can show you how. At Karen, we've helped families overcome addiction for 70 years. So if your loved one is ready for something different, visit caron.org slash lost.